0: all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
1: Hey everyone, Simon here. And I wanted to let you know that we are wrapping up season four with a special episode with Ralph Chami, the assistant director of the International Monetary Fund, a global organization dedicated to creating a framework for sustainable growth and prosperity by supporting economic policies that promote financial stability and monetary cooperation. I can't believe how quickly season four has flown by with all of our interviews with global CEOs, CMOs, and CSOs, as well as dynamic founders at the helm of purpose-led companies authentically leading with WE. I want to thank our producer of Lead with WE, Goal 17 Media, for their amazing partnership over all four seasons. And most importantly, we want to thank you for your support, especially as our audience continues to grow. I'm really excited about the guests we already have lined up for season five, and in the meantime, check out the more than 100 episodes we had from the first four seasons on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Thank you for your support. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to share the exciting news that we've now launched the Lead With We Launchpad online course that shows you step-by-step how to engage and inspire all of your stakeholders to build your business and its impact with you. Check it out at LeadWithWeCourse.com, From WeFirst and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead With We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. And today I'm joined by Ralph Chami. Ralph is Assistant Director for the International Monetary Fund, a global organization dedicated to creating a framework for sustainable growth and prosperity for its member countries by promoting financial stability and monetary cooperation. And we'll discuss how business creates markets that serve nature and its restoration to solve for the climate crisis, and what the future of business will look like where humanity and the planet work together in a way that rewards investors and stewards of the planet. So Ralph, welcome to Lead With We. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am so happy to have you on the podcast because you're this glorious, curious creature that lives at the intersection of financial economics and environmental economics. And we'll get into that more in a moment, but tell us exactly your role at the IMF, what the IMF is, and how it led you to sit at the intersection of those two sort of points of view.
0: So IMF and World Bank are what's referred to as Bretton Woods Institutions were created at the end of the Second World War. And the idea behind creating them was to ensure that the global payment system would be stable, that there'll be free and open markets for trade, basically, uh, you know, sharing the wealth and good fortunes across the globe and ensure financial stability. That was the idea. The IMF that is a more of a financial institution. The World Bank is much more of a development institution.
1: And so your role in the IMF for the last several years, I believe you're on sabbatical right now, is that correct?
0: Yes, I am on sabbatical. I, at the IMF, did almost everything. I I did research, I did capacity development, training, technical assistance, and also did operational work. I did work on what's referred to as fragile states. These are countries that have gone through turmoil, are still going through turmoil. I became an expert in this area.
1: And so you're probably, to many, as far removed as you possibly could be from the environmental motives that are so top of mind, yet you are an architect for a whole new paradigm, a whole new way of looking at this. So, you know, I think over the last hundred plus episodes of the podcast, we've seen there's these inflection moments in people's lives that really course correct or course change or shift where they're headed. I think yours had something to do with a large body of water and the world's largest mammal. Like, can you tell us about that?
0: Okay, so... So the story goes like this. I had worked on fragile states for a number of years. I was on the ground in many countries that, let's just say, quite dangerous <laughs> to operate in. So eventually I became fragile myself and I needed a break. And mm. I bumped into a friend that I hadn't seen in a number of years. And she asked me, where have you been? And I said, well, I've been working in these, in these countries and I'm really feeling tired. She said, well, I look very tired. Do you need a break? I said, yeah. What would you like to do on your break? And I said... Out of the blue, I just said, I would love to see the Great Whales. And the reason I said that, I actually don't know why I said that to her, but the reason it popped out is because when I was 14, I wanted to be an oceanographer. So 40 years later, I bump into my friend and out of the blue, she says to me, oh, you want to see the Great Whales? Well, I belong to this group that studies the Great Whales. I mean i had known her for a n- number of years she never ever mentioned that to you're me. like what have you been doing holding yeah, out on yeah, like, me like do we know it? each other i was like yeah listen you i said really she said yeah you want to study the, the great whales i said yes so she called them up and they said yeah we have one place and and then they said can he swim yeah i can swim does he get seasick not often okay yeah. so can you get yourself to Loreto, mexico And literally, I mean, imagine me, I mean, on a daily basis, you're wearing a suit and tie and you're eating with the officials and this. I had really, I thought to myself, what did I get myself into? And I joined a group of whale experts and scientists who were studying the blue whale at the time in the Sea of Cortez. You know, just with that in mind, your emotional state at that point, you said that
1: you were pretty kind of depleted and so on, but... Do you think in hindsight there was anything else going on? Because I often find that these inflection moments come when you're searching for something and you mentioned that love of oceanography all the way back when. What, what was happening kind of in your interior life, shall we say? So,
0: yeah, in retrospect, I was always asking myself, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Right. And I have no idea why I told her I wanted to see The Great Wets. But probably that's the best thing that ever happened to me. I ended up on a boat with a bunch of strangers in the Sea of Cortez. Who were tracking and studying the blue whales at the time, and yeah. I mean, I know nothing about whales, right? At that point, I'm nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not uh, an underwater. That's it. <laughs> exactly. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? And then the skipper is an expert, so he, he kind of knew there was a blue whale in the vicinity. But when we arrived, and suddenly she came out of the water. <laughs>
1: I've yeah. never seen a blue whale. And I think, you know, it's one of those things that lives in people's minds' eyes, one of those things I'd love to see. But just how did it strike you that moment when you saw this majestic creature and so on? What is that personal experience? Well, like?
0: I always tell people you have to understand what I was staring at. I was staring at the largest creature that has ever lived. Right. And in you can fit an African elephant inside her mouth would disappear completely. Mm-mm. Forget the rest of the body. That's just the mouth. Wow. <laughs> Wow, She was swimming around us. She swam under the boat. <laughs> and then that is like, when I saw her, when I finally saw her, that's when everything changed. It was really an amazing moment for me. What then caused you to actually
1: do something with that? I think many of us have this sort of powerful moving experience, but it's another step altogether to go and say, well, okay, what, how can I act differently
0: on that basis? So what was your next step? So... My job on the boat was to clock when the whale comes up and when the whale goes down, because I didn't know anything else. I was completely useless to them. At night, after 11 hours on the boat, we'd go back to the house where we would have dinner all together. So we were about 12 people sitting around the dinner table and we're having a conversation. And I was trying to get into the conversation and one of them mentioned whale carbon. And when they mentioned whale carbon, my first degree is in physics, right, in, in sciences. So I said, whale well, carbon, okay, we're all carbon units. And they said, yeah, Ralph, but you think you have as much carbon as on yourself as, as a great whale? And I said, no, of course not. But what are we talking about here? Mm. And of course, I'm a financial economist. And the economists, we always think like, on average, how much is carbon on a whale? They, the scientists don't think like that. And I created an Excel spreadsheet on my bed. I sleep that night. And the first number that popped up was nine nine tons of carbon on the body of a whale. And if you convert that to carbon dioxide, that's 33 tons of carbon dioxide being kept out of the atmosphere. And I literally fell out of my bed. I was like, what? what?
1: So literally a whale is like sequestering that much carbon. On its body. On its body.
0: Yeah. Because you see, and, and not only that, now the question is, what does it do with it? Well when they, you know, when they perish, and they die, they, they're so heavy, they sink. And anything that goes below 1000 meters, that carbon is sequestered for life. So that's where that number becomes significant, because that means that carbon never goes back up into the atmosphere, never becomes carbon dioxide. That was, that was like a eureka moment for me, because I was like 33 tons, 33 tons of carbon dioxide, how many trees is this? You see, I started to think like that, right? Because that's not my area of expertise at all. I'm a financial economist, man. Yeah.
1: And so what? What? why was that important to you, though? Because we hear uh, about carbon being a bad thing. We hear about carbon offsets. Okay. So
0: give us the context for what was True. going on in your so, mind now. Okay, okay, okay. So I'm sitting at the IMF, and the IMF is working on climate change. And climate mitigation is all about reducing the flow of carbon into the atmosphere and draining the tub, draining the amount of carbon that is already in the atmosphere. And then IMF is working on really the pricing, what ought to be the pricing of carbon so that people's behavior would change and we'd become more climate sensitive. So that's why I was just first calculating the carbon, trying to understand how much carbon is on the body of the whale just because they challenged me to it. And then when I got the carbon dioxide, I thought to myself, wait a minute. So the one whale is equivalent to you know, potentially thousands of trees in terms of its carbon ability, how much it has. The whale, they like to eat krill and they have a huge appetite to eat a lot of krill. And krill likes, so think of a triangle in your head, okay? The base of the triangle is whale eats krill. Mm-hmm. The second arm of the of the triangle is krill likes to eat phytoplankton. And phytoplankton is very important because that's really the biological life of the ocean. starts with the phytoplankton. These are microscopic organisms that everybody likes to feed on. (laughs) But they do something really, really cool. They absorb about 33 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year from the atmosphere. Right. Okay. And that's equivalent to the work of four Amazon forests per year. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember at dinner, I said, wait, 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 wait a minute, guys. The whale grabs carbon on their body. They said, yes. And indirectly through the fertilization of phyto. And the scientists were like, yeah, so what? I said, so these guys are great allies in the fight against climate change. Yeah, that's what I was thinking,
1: because we all sit there going, you know, business and humanity has caused this problem. They put so much carbon in the atmosphere. We've got to pull it out of the atmosphere. We've got to reduce the amount we're producing. But beyond planting trees and forests and so on and carbon offsets, we haven't really heard about the rest of you know the natural systems out there. So
0: I, is that what really kind of went yeah, off in your mind? Yeah. So. That was the first which is fauna, not only, because we all think of trees and greens. This is animals. Animals are actually, in this case, cetacean. the whale is helping us in the fight against climate change. That's the first thing that occurred to my, in my head. So they're literally a carbon offset. All of these living. Yeah, exactly. System, yeah, wow. they, they're grabbing carbon on behalf of you and me, and even the guy who's living in Nebraska, who, who was landlocked is somehow being saved by the work of the whales in the ocean. I
1: think it's worth reminding folks, Ralph, at this point yeah. that the way that economic models to date are, not to oversimplify, is they typically exclude these externalities, the cost to the living system,
0: outside their calculations, correct? Or not? Yeah, I mean, if I tell you what is the value of a salmon, the first thing that comes to most people's minds is, well, oh, I had a salmon at a restaurant yesterday, and they charged me $30 per plate. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what is the value of a living and thriving salmon in the water left alone for its own sake? Right. No, I think that's right. very,
1: very fair. And, and how right. did you
0: extrapolate from the blue whale?
1: Like, what is this? How can you have an economic system where you actually factor in all of nature? I mean, is there an economic model where we can have nature at its core? I mean, can that sure, work? Sure.
0: sure. Well, now in retrospect, what I'm really doing with my colleagues is what I refer to as science-based finance. Oh, that's the beauty of it. But we just say in general what it is, here's a whale and it lives a certain amount of time, may give birth if she's a female. So you're basically building a population growth model. Mm. And once you understand the relationship between the population and the amount of carbon that is being sequestered over the lifetime of the whale, then you can basically bring in the finance machinery. That's my area of expertise. Yeah. And basically you're looking at it I hate to say that, but it's like you're valuing a share of stock that it pays dividends, except that these dividends are baby whales that give birth to other dividends. And so you have to keep track over time that you have this way living, let's say, 60 years, and she's going to give birth, and this baby is going to grow up and going to give birth. And so you keep track till you reach the amount of whales that we used to have in nature. We used to have about 4.5 million or 4 million whales. And we're now at, let's say, a million, million and some. And what you're doing is you're building that profile of the population going from where it is right now to its potential.
1: And so let me telescope out from this and go, the issue that we're all very focused on is the climate emergency because it's going to affect all of our lives. Yet to date, we're kind of looking through a limited lens, a blinkered lens as to how we can sequester carbon and reduce the amount of carbon that we're putting out into the world. And what you're saying is, if we look at the whole living systems out there and the role that everything plays, then we can leverage kind of the same financially driven model to the
0: advantage of nature and ourselves in terms of climate. Yeah, think of it this way. The oil producing countries sat on a black goo for a thousand years. Right. They know what to do with it until Henry Ford said, listen, I need to move my machine from here to here. And I need that black goo. Right. That black goo went from a price of zero to a price of $100 a barrel. So you were sitting on something, you had no value for it, you didn't know what to do with it until somebody else needed it and was willing to pay a price for it. And that price basically went from zero to 100. So we've been sitting on a living nature for a very, very long time, right? We have You have your iPad and your iPhone and your car and your this. Your footprint on this planet, on this gorgeous planet, has really... Is much bigger than you, our ancestors. So what we used to, if you were to think nature was infinite, it's actually finite. And add to it that the science itself is telling you: if you want to fight climate change, you need a living nature because a living nature can help us in the in the grabbing of carbon by at least thirty eight percent. That is the latest IPCC report. That is not my opinion. That is work of the scientists. Right. And why is that also important? Because we are not only facing climate calamity, we're also facing the potential loss of nature itself and biodiversity. I mean, you have 1 million species on the verge of extinction.
1: Right.
0: If you just focus on the climate side, you think, oh, it's all about grabbing carbon. So why don't I, why don't I get a machine that'll grab carbon? I would be okay. But what's the yeah. use of building that machine? Let's say, theoretically, you could do that. If the oceans, well, you know, if the oceans die, we die. Whether you grab carbon or you don't grab carbon, we
1: die. So you how see? do you frame the case now to business leaders, small wow. and large? How do you frame it? Because you've, you've ported the natural world into our profit motive world. Yes. So you've got to compel them in that profit motive
0: world to look after the natural world in a way. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so, so the first thing I had to do, which is to write, by the way, to write the first paper, I had 18 iterations. Because I couldn't figure out with my colleagues how to write it. Are you telling the story of the whales? Are you telling the story about what they do? Are you talking about carbon? Are you talking about oxygen? Well, it turns out, science tells you, if you invest in nature, you will reduce the risks to nature, living nature. So if you were to protect, restore, rejuvenate nature, then nature will reward you by reducing climate risk by at least 38%. I mean, it's such it's a like powerful... It's in, exactly. exactly. It's, like it's right it's, in front of us. It's yeah, right exactly. in front of us. So, so I'm like, there's this plan, but here's the issue. If nature is that important, we should be funding it. Then I looked at how much funding is nature receiving, and it's woefully short. The gap, the financing gap to protect, restore nature is in the hundreds of billions of dollars per year. So how am I going to bridge that gap? And I thought... Can I present an investment proposition? Is nature investable? And, and the answer is, of course yes. it is. Walk us through that because, I mean, you, how to connect sustainable
1: business practices and share prices and business performance is critical. Otherwise, no
0: one's going to participate. Exactly. So how does that work? Exactly. All right. So what I'm saying is nature is investable. Now, when you say investment, that means there's an investor that's going to invest in a project. That means there's somebody that has a project or has technology but doesn't have the money, and somebody is sitting on money, is interested in the project. You have to have demand, you have to have supply. Let's talk about demand first. Where does the demand come from? Well, these enlightened countries met at some point and made commitments to go carbon zero or negative or neutral by 2050. If they had made commitments to go carbon neutral by 2100, you would not be interviewing me right now because that means it's far enough into the future that the price of carbon would have been zero. But they made a commitment to go carbon zero by a close enough date. Right? They were they had no idea how to do it. They just they were creating market forces because exactly, there's exactly. There's a time exactly. limit. That's it. And so what happened when they made those commitments for 2050? It was predicated on taking on having to take action at that point or a series of actions at that point in time. But as you, we all know, no one did anything. They just, they shook hands, they hugged each other, they cried, and then everybody went on to pollute and extract some more. So what happened? The 2050 moved up against us because you're making a commitment to a date and time, and time is dynamic. You said, I was going to do, I'm going to do things today that will solve the problem by 2050, but I didn't do anything today, so now the problem is 2040. And we said, we're going to do what we're going to do, and governments didn't do anything suddenly the IPCC reports are talking about 2030. You see? Mm. So what does that mean? That means the urgency to deal with the problem has skyrocketed, which means the demand for the technology or the ways to reduce carbon emissions and to drain the tub. I usually call it draining the tub of what's up in the atmosphere is urgent. It's right now, which means somebody, a lot of Corporations and countries are willing to pay a lot of money for anyone that can help them. Who can help them? So this is the demand side. Who can help? Well, all these countries, all these communities, anybody who's sitting on the technology that can grab carbon from the atmosphere. Right. Well, okay, there are two ways there. There's something called high tech approach, which is carbon capture machines, and something that a dear friend of mine likes to call Earth tech approach, which is. The earth tech approach, different than the high tech approach, is 3 billion years old, tried and true technology. It's called nature, yep. <laughs> of which we are one expression, but one expression. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And IPCC is telling you, if you restore nature, protect nature, it will grab for you at least 38%. We need the price at which supply and demand will meet. And we need them to meet because just because you have supply and demand, sometimes they don't meet because the problems could be so severe. My work really is focused on bringing the two parties together and showcasing that we are going to live happily ever after. Because what you're really going to do is those that need the carbon are going to pay those that are sitting on the technology that grabs carbon. And because that technology is a living technology, that means you need to keep it alive and well. So the money comes in to invest in protection of nature. So it's, you solve the problem. And by protecting nature... Countries that have that nature that can grab on behalf of the rest of us will get all that money, will look after nature in perpetuity. And when you look after nature in perpetuity, you're looking after the people because nature stewards and nature, their lives are intertwined. Suppose you want the carbon, you want me to sequester carbon on your behalf, and I'm using, let's say, seagrass to do so. So I need to keep the seagrass alive and well and thriving. Because that's the only way the seagrass can grab the carbon on your behalf. And you're paying me for it. So I get the payment and I look after the seagrass on your behalf, right? And by stabilizing the seagrass, I stabilize the communities that need the seagrass for fish, communities that lead the seagrass to stave off flooding, you see? And all these island economies that have no hills to run to when the waves come, And they need the seagrass, they need the mangroves, they need the corals that will break the movement of the waves and stave off flooding. So you have demand. Who is demanding it? Well, let's say Microsoft, Google, Walmart, all these corporations that made commitments to go carbon zero, carbon negative, carbon neutral. They're looking around saying, okay, who's going to help me meet this this commitment? You have the Bahamas sitting on the other side, sitting on 30% of the world seagrass, saying, hey... I will sell you the carbon. And Ralph, you know, can
1: you give us a, a concrete example of what progress is being made? How is this being brought to life? Is there a pilot program you could point to?
0: Sure. The Bahamas would be a, an excellent example. The scientists a few months ago published a paper called Using Tiger Sharks to Map the Seafloor of the Bahamas. And they actually fitted tiger sharks with cameras. And the tiger sharks hunt sea turtles. So, and the sea turtles feed on seagrass. So, the tiger sharks mapped the amount, the seagrass of the Bahamas, and, they, and the scientists discovered that the Bahamas is sitting on 30% of the global mass of seagrass. Now, why is that important? Because I am doing work with colleagues showing that the seagrass globally is worth over a trillion dollars wow. in carbon sequestration alone. <laughs> All right, that's market valuation, that's not environmental economics. This is pure market. Okay. Why? Because seagrass grows exponentially for 50 years and then continues to grow at a constant rate forever. Imagine. Yep. Okay. And so you can calculate how much carbon they, you know, the seagrass will grab over time. That's why I call this science-based finance. Okay. And then if Bahamas is sitting on 30% of it, you can imagine potentially that the Bahamas is sitting on a couple of hundred billion dollars potentially in carbon. Right. Right. All right. So we're working with the government of the Bahamas to take the seagrass to the markets. They know exactly what they have. And they've also passed the law, which is in order for nature markets to take hold, you need to ascertain who can speak on behalf of nature. Hmm. Because if I'm gonna buy the carbon of the seagrass, who's on the other side of of the contract? With whom am I contracting with? Right? So the ownership who can speak on behalf of nature is very important. They pass all the laws. It basically says any carbon that is produced, whether it's green or blue, fauna or flora in the Bahamas, belongs to the government. Those laws have been passed, so everything is done. What they're doing now is basically working on what the certificate would look like. Hopefully, it'll be a resilience certificate that basically says you're not only purchasing carbon credits, but you're also you're getting biodiversity credits because you're saving the sea turtles and you're and you're saving the tiger sharks. And you're, by creating resilience in nature, you're creating resilience in the people of the Bahamas. Right? Such a such a powerful. It's, incri- exactly. it's an incredible, and it's it's complete. The government gets revenue, nature's looked after in perpetuity. Local communities get employment, get stability. You alleviate poverty, and whoever is buying the carbon credits gets support on their website. Have, I'm helping to save the sea turtles, and the tiger sharks, and I'm getting my carbon credits. I call it the win-win-win. Model. There are no losers in this. How close are we? We're a few months away from basically launching it. So So it's not only the one to one benefit, there's a knock on effect of the connectivity inside the ecosystem. You got the biodiversity. So, what I am working with the Bahamas, I am involved in it, is basically coming up with a resilience certificate that tells Microsoft you are not just purchasing carbon, you are actually investing in biodiversity. You are protecting the sea turtles and the tiger sharks because they are on the endangered species list. By investing in seagrass, you're ensuring that the tiger sharks and the sea turtles will be protected forever. And I'm Ralph, I'm going to put on my cynics hat because we all
1: know that financial markets aren't necessarily predisposed to invest in such instruments or systems. But my larger concern is It's a very fast-moving dialogue that's going on right now. We've gone from sustainability to regeneration to climate to carbon to biodiversity to nature positive, and there's also the whole concern around greenwashing and so on. And there are also deadlines which have been set for very real reasons, after which there's a cascading effect that's going to compromise all of our lives. So my larger question is, with this breakthrough and insight, Are we moving far enough, fast enough? Is adoption being embraced? Will we get there in time? And how are we overcoming these very
0: self-serving or cynical obstacles that have caused so much of the problem in the first place? Wonderful. So I've worked in financial market development for 30 years. There is no case of a nascent market that is not subject to gold rush behavior. I mean, this is every market you can think of went through that teething problem. Now your question is, do we have enough time? Right. Yeah, we don't have a choice because if we lose nature, I don't care what machine you're gonna to build to grab carbon, you're not gonna be around to enjoy it. Maybe the microbes will be. It's the ultimate
1: incentive, Ralph. It's the ultimate incentive.
0: Yeah, existential. Except- yeah, we belong to nature. If we lose nature, there's no sense in grabbing any carbon or doing anything else. We're not gonna be around. You know what, the Ralph? I mean, I'm gonna double
1: down on my cynics hat for a second and go, if that was compelling in and of itself, and won the day, we wouldn't see all these destructive behaviors persisting. And lobbyists behind the scenes, coercing politicians to even speak against their own values, irrespective of your political views. Like, how are we going to wake up through the government policy-making lens in time to what is so
0: self-evident, but that hasn't been enough up till now? Absolutely. So my approach is I'm focusing on the business community. I'm focusing on the financial markets because the resources are there. And if you speak their language, if you speak their language, if you do their cost benefit analysis, they can move faster. Right. I've realized a long time ago, unfortunately, that politicians is the tail that wags the dog. They, they see where the money is coming from and they get on the bandwagon and they say, I saw it. But how do we act in the short time that we have? We need funding to come into this market. So the proposition that I make to the Microsoft and others, I don't want your philanthropic money. I want you to look at this as an investment. So let's take a company that says, "Okay, Ralph, what money am I going to make out of this proposition? So you're going to buy these carbon credits. You can use them to offset whatever you have, or you can trade them if you like, because the price of carbon is going up. So if I have a field of seagrass and I sell you the carbon, not this. I never sell you the asset. I sell you the service of the asset. If I sell it to you at 40 and you trade it at 100 that means the rest of my field now is repriced at $100. So either they meet their obligations and or they can benefit from trading up. And by investing in nature, they are investing in biodiversity. They're creating the resilience in nature. They're stabilizing people and their land. That, how much is that worth to them? Well, I'll tell you how much. That's worth a lot of them because their consumers are asking them, what are you doing mm-hmm. to save nature right. and to fight right. climate change? The regulators are coming very quickly. I know much about Europe and Europe is far ahead of us. Yeah,
1: ecocide legislation. Exactly. that will have corporate offices liable for willfully damaging the planet.
0: Exactly. TNFD. Yeah, I mean, the high seas, all of this, it's coming. It's coming very quickly saying it's not enough to tell me that you're grabbing carbon. What else are you doing to avoid Hurting nature. This climate issue and there's nature. What are you doing to preserve, protect, restore nature? And companies need to come up with this new narrative that they are good citizens of this planet. And what I'm doing, I'm helping them by telling them I can help you with that narrative. And I want to make sure that you don't egg you don't get egg on your face, you don't claim things. So what I'm focusing most of my efforts these days is how to provide, how to verify, how to certify the certifier, how to create transparency. I've been in the markets long enough to understand this is what really kills a good idea, is the execution of it. No, absolutely. It's all in the doing.
1: And to that point, what needs to happen for this to be embraced from a market opportunity point of view more quickly? And if it is, what do you see the future of
0: financial
1: markets and our relationship with nature as a result
0: Ah, oh, beautiful okay so let me start from the end if we if we survive this climate the self-inflicted climate calamity yeah who will we be we will all be better stewards of this beautiful planet because you see i can play games with you i can try to cheat you but you cannot cheat nature mm. we can you know oh build all kinds of games and webs and all this stuff, but nature is coming at you. Nature says, I don't care how, who you fool, but you can't fool me. Mm. So nature and climate and these risks are real. These are real constraints that we have to face. If we were to survive those, that means we will be better stewards of this nature. What I'm doing right now is I'm bribing this generation to be better stewards of nature. I'm using this investment motive to bring on board this generation that caused the damage. If it's an investment motive, they'll bring on board. What we need is to scale up this effort. Absolutely, Ralph. but how do we scale up nature? I'll explain to you. I've never really explained it before, but I'll reveal it today. The reason we haven't been able to scale up is because what does it mean to scale up this effort? You need the money forward in order to build the business. In order for you to build the business, to tell the investor, give me your money now, you have to present to the investor the future, what the future is going to look like. Right, right. So this how tangible. you value a company. You say, what are your future cash flows going to look like? And then I tell you what your value is today. Mm-hmm. The problem with conservation work today is it's all spot transaction, meaning the mangrove grew by this much. Okay, so I will sell you that carbon, but that's a spot transaction. Right. In order for you to scale up, you have to tell the investment community what's that carbon profile going to look like 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road in order for the investor to say, okay, I'm willing to take a chance on you. Right. So now I can go to an investor and say, hey, I can sell you carbon output of this seagrass field for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Would you like to invest today? The guy said, why should I invest today? I said, because you're going to buy low and sell high. Right, right. And that's the language
1: they listen to. You have to talk to people with what they're willing to hear. And what I love about what you're saying is we all talk about, you know, the need to shift to long-termism versus short-termism, but you're providing a long-term incentive, not just a long-term responsibility. That's it.
0: That's it. You're taking what is typically a consumption type behavior. When you buy carbon from a machine, right? What you're really doing, you're consuming, you're, you're buying it today. You're done. What I'm doing is I'm taking someone who may do that and converting them into an investor, a long-term investor. In what? In mother nature. So we're all going to be equity holders in this beautiful planet and make money off of it. I think, Ralph, it is poetic justice that our survival as a species
1: turns on restoring the natural world in the abundant ecosystem that it is. And sort of a last thought, if you could give one piece of advice or one insight based on your extraordinary sort of expertise through the financial lens, but also now in the environmental lens, to CEOs of founders of companies of all types as to what the future of financial markets working with nature is going to look like and what they need to do now to take advantage of it. What would your advice be?
0: Their future is going to be all nature-based. They're going to read, all businesses are going to read JIG such that when they make any decision, nature will not be an afterthought. Nature would be present. Because when we put price on the value of a living nature, it enters your cost equation, it enters your revenue equation. That never happened before. When you price the services of a living nature, it will enter their budget. It will enter their revenue, depending on which side of the equation they're on. And as a result, any decision they make, will take nature and impact of our decisions on nature endogenously. It will never be an afterthought. But the beauty of it is that by doing so, we ensure that whatever money we make will be sustainable. And what we need to do, we need to bake equity into nature markets. You cannot leave it to markets to provide equity because markets are about efficiency. Equity concerns can be baked into our system because the market system is flexible enough to allow us to do so. So for example, when I talk about equity, I'm talking about equity towards nature. I'm talking about equity towards the current generation. I'm talking about equity towards future generations that have no voice in today's decisions. So what we need to do, we need to bring those concerns as we are developing this nature market because I believe this is the future. The future will be a nature-based economy that is sustainable and is shared. And we have ways of ensuring that that money is there to look after nature in perpetuity on behalf of our future generations, and to look after nature on behalf of the current generations too. We have all the capabilities to do so. It's just that We never read the science. We never understood what the science was trying to tell us, which is a living nature is incredibly valuable to us.
1: It's uh, Firstly, it's absurd that something we know so viscerally in our bodies when we go out and experience nature, it's absurd that we have to put a dollar value on it to make us realize that it's valuable again. But I want to thank you, Ralph. I want to thank you for answering that call that you heard in your head to go and see the blue whales for some inexplicable reason, which has unlocked all of this. But also, we've always been part of nature as a species. But I think what you're helping us do is to make nature part of us again, to integrate it back into our lives and what we value and how we frame our future. And it could not be more important given the critical stakes that you know we're all trying to solve for. So I w- want to just share everybody's respect in terms of the, the unlock that you've enabled for the financial sector and what that can do for the natural world, which in turn will serve us. So thank you for the insights. Thanks for the leadership. And let's go like hell. Thank you, man. Thank you for giving nature a voice on your program. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. And you can always find out more information about today's guest in the show notes of each episode. Our show is made possible by a partnership between We First, a strategic consultancy driving growth and impact for purpose-led brands. And Goal 17 Media, that's building greater awareness of and financing for purpose-led companies. Make sure you follow Lead With We on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and do share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you'd like to dive even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead With We, which is now available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you on the next episode, and until then, let's all lead with we.